O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, bless this, the reading of your word. Bless we who have heard it. And may you bless the meditation of our hearts upon it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We began looking at Isaiah 40 last week with the first eight verses. A little mean of me. I gave eight verses to my father last week and only took three for myself so I could have the easier job. Uh, but, but these are glorious verses. They, they deserve their own focus and they're certainly their own section in this passage. As we looked at the first eight verses, among other things, we, we saw John the Baptist clearly put before us John the Baptist's calling to go forth and to proclaim, to herald the king. Uh, one part of that which we saw in the text towards the end of last week's sermon was the call to sanctification. Make the paths straight and level. Uh, come in repentance and prepare the way for the Lord. That's an important part of John's ministry when we come to the Gospels. He preaches a message of repentance. But it's important for us to remember that repentance is not the message of comfort which John brought. Repentance itself is not the good news that makes up the gospel. Repentance is to be the response to the comfort and the response to the good news of the gospel. So the the comfort itself rested in what we've received before we're even called to repent. What we receive here is what what someone else has done. Verse 2, iniquity pardoned, received from the hand of the Lord. John's calling, therefore, is not only to call us to repentance, but to call us to repentance with the good news and the comfort, not of what we have done, but of the one who has done it. And that's where the passage turns in verses 9 through 11. It brings us back to what the comfort is, the gospel good news is. It is not what you do. The good news is who has done it. 
And so we're told very clearly to behold our God. That in one sense is the gospel boiled down. When we truly behold our God as he is presented to us in the gospel of Christ, we come face to face with all the comfort which we need. In fact, the only comfort which will sustain us in life and in death. So let us think about comfort this morning in terms of what we're taught in these three verses. First, we're taught that there's comfort in beholding God the Mighty One. Now the phrase Mighty One doesn't actually appear in these verses. But verse 10 is saying this. Verse 10 with the reference to the Lord God And notice there, God in all caps. So the Lord, who is Yahweh, the covenant name known and revealed to Israel through Moses. The great I am, Yahweh, who came and brought them out of Egypt. That's going to be significant in verse 10. Here we are to behold our God. Who is he? Well, he's the covenant God, but he's the mighty covenant God. Look at what describes him. When we go to good gaze at this God, we see that he is one who comes with a strong hand and an arm that rules. And that is language that should bring us to the books of Moses. It's language that's found throughout the entire Old Testament, of course. But especially in Moses, the hand and the arm of God are to draw our attention to the conquering hero, the mighty one who saves. Just in Deuteronomy alone, it appears this this combination, the mighty hand, and usually it's the outstretched arm, Here in our text, it's the arm that rules. But this concept appears just in Deuteronomy alone over a dozen times. Here are just two of those, two examples. You can read Deuteronomy to find the rest. Here are just two examples. Deuteronomy 4, verse 34, we read, Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation, by trials, signs, wonders, war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Moses is saying, has this happened to anyone else? God doesn't just go around taking peoples out from other nation groups and making new nations, but he did that with you. We can jump ahead to Matthew 28 and find that Christ says that's exactly what he's going to do through you. Go around taking people out of other nation groups and forming a new nation. But, but Moses is saying this isn't something God has gone around doing previously, but he's done it for you. And the language is of God doing it as a mighty warrior who goes and claims, he even uses the phrase right before this in that section, by war, 
I'll go and read Exodus. There's no war of two armies. But there's a war between God and others. We'll come back to that in a moment. The other text you can look at is just flipping the page in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 5, verse 15 declares, Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Notice what both of these texts have in common, and indeed the vast majority of texts in the book of Moses that use this language of the mighty hand, the outstretched arm, you'll find it in the Psalms as well, they're referring to specifically what God did in the Exodus. The mighty warrior who went into the land of one of the most powerful kings of his day, who had one of the most elite militaries of his day, and brought his people out without them having to fight a single battle. It should cause us to think about what the Exodus teaches us about this mighty warrior God. And if you think about what God does in Exodus, he is indeed an elite warrior. Remember the plagues. Do you realize what God is doing in the plagues? He is systematically dismantling the Egyptian pantheon. I know pantheon's not an Egyptian word, but you know what I mean by that, right? The gods of Egypt. I never saw this movie, but a few years ago, a movie came out called The Gods of Egypt. Didn't see it, but I, I just remembered seeing a trailer for it a few years back. And this morning I was thinking, what a, what a joke that is. I kind of want to know how that story ended in the movie. Because there is a text of, a section of scripture that shows us the gods of Egypt. It doesn't even bother telling you their names. Because they're, they're not really important enough for Moses to name. I'll, I'll throw a couple of them at you because you learn them maybe in school or hear them other places today. But... Think about what God does with the plagues. For example, uh, there were two gods. I don't know quite how to pronounce this one. Um, Knum, and the other one is Hathi. And they were river gods. They controlled the rivers, which of course were so important for Egypt's life and Egypt's harvest, if you know how their planting next to the Nile worked. Two of their great gods of the rivers. And what does God do in the first plague? He turns all the fresh water to blood. What's their rebuttal to that? They don't have one, do they? It stays blood until God says otherwise. Another of the gods of Egypt was... um, I can't read my own note here. Abu or Ahu. I forget if it's nature or a bee. He was the god of the god of light. They had another one that was the god of darkness. What does God do in the plagues? Three days of absolute darkness. And all the magicians, and even though it doesn't say it, we can imply all the priests of Egypt. What, what were they able to accomplish for three days? 
It's not until God gives light that they have light again. Shouldn't surprise us. Because these gods are claiming power and authority that isn't theirs. The light of the world is the one who's bringing judgment on Egypt. The one who set the rivers and the oceans in their place and set their boundaries that they might not pass beyond them is the one who is turning the water to blood. Or think of a third example. Perhaps the most famous of them, Osiris, the god of the underworld, or Anubis, the god of traveling to the underworld when you die. And what does God do with the final plague? He shows that these gods have no power. They're fake, false, nothing. He says, I will take the firstborn son. Every firstborn male, that's human and animal. Except for those of my people who put the blood of the lamb over the doorway, them I will not take. And what was the outcome the next morning? Statistically, was God 30% right, 98% right? He got most of the Egyptians' firstborns. He only messed up and took one of the Jewish firstborn. No. He did exactly what he said, and their greatest gods could do nothing about it. Now you can go through, I've just picked three of the days of the plagues. There's seven others. You can go, you got the internet. Some of you might have an encyclopedia. You can, you can find the gods of Egypt and you can do the work yourself. And you'll see the mighty one systematically defeat every single deity of Egypt. And to add insult to, in, uh, insult to injury, thank you. What does he do right after that? He brings his people through the dry land, and when the elite human military force, the greatest tank army of the day, comes after them, he kills them all with the snap of a finger. Just like that. This is a mighty one. Verse 10 is drawing our thoughts to this mighty one. And it's t- he's telling us the comfort we should have that our warfare is ended. What kind of comfort might we have that our warfare really is ended as God says if this is the God who goes forth to end the war? It should be absolute. Any Israelite should know that without having to think twice. And so should we. This is the mighty one, the conquering hero, come to free his people and to finish the war. Verse 10 also shows us something else about him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. What is this reward? There there are two ways that you can read that. You can read it as a reward which he brings with him for other people, or you can read it as the reward he gets for the work he does. 
Both of those are biblical thoughts, aren't they? It could be that it's the reward he brings with him. What is the reward? Well, when this mighty one comes as judge to rule with his outstretched arm, he will give to each one some it will be everlasting death, the reward and wages of their sins. And some it will be everlasting life by his grace. Or what if it's the reward he gets? Is that a biblical thought that, that in some way this warrior Messiah, Christ, would get a reward for what he does? Well, the answer there is yes. That's also a biblical thought. We can start very generally in thinking about this. Think about what Philippians 2 tells us of him receiving as a result of his work. We read there, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because he humbled himself and died the obedient death of the cross, therefore the Father gives him a reward, the highest exaltation before all the universe. Or you could think of this same point made in Daniel chapter 7, Verses 13 and 14, there of Jesus we read, Behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. But there's also a more specific emphasis here of a reward he has received for the work he has done. This is found in the Psalms, and it's quoted in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 13. In fact, in Hebrews 2, 13, the words are put in the mouth of Christ himself. He says to the Father, Here I am, and the children you have given me. In other words, specifically speaking, we can say that the redeemed are a gift the Father has given the Son. A gift he gives him because of the work he has done. Well, really, you can choose either of those options for understanding verse 10. And you come to the same conclusion, don't you? Here is the mighty one, and he has a people. He gives his people eternal life, and he himself receives his people as a reward for his work. But it doesn't stop with a mighty one receiving a people. Our text 
shows us there in verse 10, Christ's reward, a redeemed people purchased with his own blood because of his mighty work. And having done this, verse 11 shows us he shepherds and tends those very people. So if the first thought of comfort in these three verses is that comfort, there is comfort found in beholding God, the mighty one. We also are shown in verse 11, there's comfort found in beholding God, the shepherd. What is his character, his attitude towards those whom his mighty arm has redeemed? Is it abusive? Is it harsh? Is it militaristic? Is it like a Marine treating his children just like the soldiers under his command? Verse 11 tells us it's not. Verse 11 tells us his character, this mighty one, turns all the might of that mighty hand and outstretched arm toward protecting, tending, providing, caring for his sheep, those purchased with his own blood. It's an amazing verse, isn't it? It, in fact, uses that very arm to show us the type of protection and tender protection we have. The very arm that rules in might is the arm that brings in to the bosom to hold tight and safe. We we don't typically see, if we were to see a strong person holding baby Naomi, for example, like a football like this, we, we would conclude a lot of negative things probably. At the very least, this person should not be holding this baby. Maybe doesn't like babies or want to hold a baby. Maybe forgot that they're holding a baby and not a football. Whatever the thing, we don't, no matter how strong. It could be, it could be the strongest man of the year holding baby Naomi like this, and we would not have the impression of care and protection. But we see someone holding a baby close like this, and we do have that thought of protection. And verse 11 is making it very clear. The mighty one gives the best protection. Tenderness, gentleness is found with this shepherd who gathers the lambs in his arms, carries them in his bosom. And those in the flock that are most likely to fall behind and get lost, those leading young, he will gently lead them. He won't get frustrated and say, why are you taking so long? You're holding us up. He will gently lead this flock and feed them. The shepherd imagery is very prevalent, isn't it, throughout Scripture. Here, here we see the comfort in feeling his embrace. But throughout the rest of Scripture, there are a lot of other areas of shepherd comfort that we could add to that. 
aren't there? From Christ's own lips, we could add the comfort of hearing his voice. John 10. Christ says the sheep hear the shepherd's voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know they know his voice. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known by them. There's amazing comfort in hearing the voice of the shepherd. Hearing the voice of the shepherd. And there's amazing comfort in beholding his sacrifice. I want you to think about this command, Behold your God, given in this text. In part, surely John the Baptist saw his task as fulfilling this. Is it too big of a stretch to say that Zacharias the priest told by an angel that his son would be the herald who would fulfill Isaiah 40 and Malachi, would go out of his way to especially instruct his son in these passages before he died. I think it would be absurd to think Elizabeth and Zacharias didn't harp on these passages over and over again that he might understand his mission given by God. So John surely knew that his calling was to say, Behold your God. And then we hear him do this in the gospel. Remember what he says? Behold the Lamb of God. Isn't that a bit odd? That John would see the fulfillment of saying, Behold your God, or even just quoting verse 10, Behold the Lord God, verse 11, who will feed his flock like a shepherd. That John wouldn't take that and say, Behold your God, behold the shepherd of Israel. But he doesn't say that. He says, Behold the Lamb. Now, John probably trained as a priest, right? From the line of Aaron on both sides. Trained in these verses by his parents, no doubt. Came to the conclusion that the mighty one who is a shepherd is the only one who could be a satisfactory sacrifice to satisfy God's justice and reconcile you to God. That's what John, he makes that leap. He might not understand it fully, but he makes that leap. And Christ tells us he made the right leap. Remember the verse that just follows after what I read a moment ago from John 10? What Jesus says right after saying, I am known by my own. Then he goes on to say, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. 
and I lay down my life for the sheep. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I will bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Christ is telling us John was right. He says, I am the good shepherd. And there will be one shepherd. And I, the one shepherd, lay down my life for the sheep. Behold the Lamb of God. I know we could add so many other shepherd texts. But I want us to stick with these three this morning. Comfort in feeling his embrace, Isaiah 40, verse 11. Comfort in knowing his voice, John 10. And comfort in beholding his sacrifice. And right there you have the gospel. Behold your God. Comfort, comfort my people. Your warfare is ended. You have received pardon. Double for all your sins. That's comfort. The third area of comfort in these three verses then is the verse we've skipped over so far. Verse 9. Which teaches us that this isn't a secret comfort. It's not a comfort for an elite few. It's not a comfort given just to one or two. Isaiah 40 is very clear that this comfort and this gospel, this proclamation, this calling to behold God extends far and wide. This good news is not a secret. In fact, verse 9, verse 9 emphasizes the response you and I ought to give to hearing John. Because verse 9, unlike the eight verses that preceded it, is not an instruction manual for John. It's an instruction manual for Israel when they hear John. For those in the church of Jesus Christ when we hear the gospel. Notice that verse 9, it is Zion who shall get up on the high mountain and proclaim. It is Jerusalem who will shout with a great voice of strength the good news of the shepherd, the mighty one, our God. And to whom are they first and foremost to shout this? To the cities of Judah. What Isaiah is saying is that the church itself needs to be reminded to behold God. Judah, that, that whole region, that is the visible people of God in Isaiah's day and in John's day. And the response that is to be given to hearing John's voice, Behold your God, is to get on top of the highest peak you can find and shout with the voice of strength as loud as you can, Behold 
God. And of course, of course, in Acts chapter 1, Christ tells his disciples that they're not to stop when they've shouted loud enough for all of Judea, but to keep shouting it from mountaintops throughout Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And that's actually an outline of the book of Acts itself. Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The book ends in Rome, from which all roads extend. But it doesn't stop there either, does it? This is our calling. A beautiful thing appears in Luke chapter 2, which we read earlier. How fitting that the chief shepherd should make the first to fulfill this call in the, after the coming of Christ, should themselves be shepherds. Think of that story we read together. The angels come. The shepherds are terrified. But just like in verse 9, which tells those who behold God not to be afraid, so the angels comfort the shepherds. They comfort the shepherds, and they have the shepherds consider the goodness of God and the gospel of God by looking at Christ. But what is their response when they have? Remember what verse 20 says of Luke chapter 2? It's actually verse 17. That having beheld Christ, the shepherds made widely known. Widely known. Concerning Christ. They understood their calling. To proclaim. Behold him. And this is our calling today. As well.